Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Gospel according to Luke chapter 6. This morning we begin to learn what the Lord Jesus taught to his disciples. We'll be spending several weeks looking at this, so it's a very exciting time. Luke chapter 6, we're going to read verse 17 through verse 26 this morning. We won't cover all of that, but it will help us to understand the portion that we want to cover. So Luke chapter 6, verse 17 through 26. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil. For the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. There's a way of thinking in our world today that if things are going well in your life, you are blessed. There's nothing new about this way of thinking. In fact, throughout times in history, it's been even more robust of an expression of this belief, it has been a theological belief that if God looks with favor upon you, your life will reflect that in the circumstances in which you find yourself. If your circumstances are bad, then you are cursed or you are not blessed. If your circumstances are good, then you are blessed. This became trivialized over the past few years in the social media world with the introduction and popularity and then uh, backlash against what is known as the hashtag blessed idea where people would post about things going well in their lives and then insert a little tag that they were blessed, blessed. And of course, it never had anything to do with being in circumstances where you just lost everything or gotten a horrible diagnosis or where things have fallen apart for you in your relationship. Instead, it always had to do with circumstances that are good. And so people would know that they are blessed. Now, these good circumstances can indeed be the result of God's blessing. And in fact, anything good that comes in your life is a gift from God. God is the source of all good gifts. Every good and perfect gift, we learned in James 1.18, comes down from the Father of lights. Sometimes the things that are good in our lives, however, are not the indication that things are going well actually with us in view of our relationship with God. In fact, sometimes they're even the result of us sinning against God and getting good circumstances because of that. But that's not really directly the idea that Jesus is speaking of here. He wants us to understand that being in good earthly circumstances is not necessarily an indicator that we are right with God or that we are blessed at all. We may be blessed with favor in a certain sense, but not in the sense that matters most. Not in the sense that matters for eternity. Not in the sense that matters in light of what we will one day care about. And so the presence of earthly blessing is not necessarily the presence of true blessing. And the absence of so-called blessings is not necessarily the absence of blessing from God either. 
Jesus wants us to understand what true blessing actually consists of. And that's what we're going to look at and focus on, especially this morning. Now, a little bit is important by way of introduction to this text. Last time we were here, we learned about the 12 disciples that Jesus chose to be with him who were known then as apostles. Verse 13 says he chose 12 of them whom he named as apostles. And he begins with Simon and goes all the way through the names leading up to the conclusion of Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Having chosen these men to be his apostles and to be with him, Jesus now opens back up his audience again and goes beyond just teaching them and starts to teach the crowd with a focus on his disciples. Jesus has been teaching throughout the Gospel of Luke as we started in chapter 4 all the way through now. He has been teaching things, he's been doing things, but he's been also teaching things. And his teaching has begun to clash with the common teaching of the day, with what people understood to be true about God and what they were hearing was true about God from such men as the Pharisees and the scribes. These teachers in Israel had harsh thoughts about Jesus because he showed where they were wrong. But now, instead of being largely directed at the teachers of Israel, Jesus is going to have words for the masses, for the people, or at least those among among the masses who would be called his disciples, his followers. This is not limited to the 12 that he chose, but he has some words to say to the people who wanted to learn from him. Now, that then tells us implicitly that we need to get ready because maybe it's been easy to hear Jesus sort of destroy the false teachers and to say, you guys are hypocrites and these things are things that you're teaching other people who are wrong. And he's put the spotlight on them. But now he's going to turn it more directly On us, on the average ordinary person who would hear Jesus, not the one who would be in an exalted teacher role in the nation of Israel, but everyone else. It's not just those who need to know what's right, it's everyone, everyone who would live rightly before God, everyone who would claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and want to know what it is that really indicates that that's who we are. And so the rest of this chapter serves as something of a test. It's a set of instructions, really a series of principles for how someone should conduct himself in the Christian religion. It doesn't cover everything that you should do or think as a Christian, but it gets right at the heart of what kind of person you really are. If you want to know, am I a faithful follower of Christ? Am I actually a godly person? Do I understand what God is like? And do I understand my responsibilities in this world? Then this sermon shows what kind of a person you really are and what kind of a person you are while not earning your way into the kingdom of God is certainly an indicator of whether you have an inheritance there of whether you will come to possess that kingdom of whether you will be there or whether you will find yourself cast out as someone who never knew the Lord and who never came to salvation So we'll begin today with the first point that Jesus wants to bring up from this sermon. uh, A promise of prosperity for the poor. A promise of prosperity for the poor. But again, before we get here, there's a little bit of an introductory section that we want to consider. Where we find in verses 17 through 19 that Jesus teaches his disciples. Jesus teaches his disciples. And we'll begin by looking first of all at the place where he stood The place where he stood. He came down, it says, with them, that is, with the twelve whom he had chosen. And he stood on a level place. Where did he come down from? Well, verse 12 tells us he had gone off to the mountain to pray. He came down to a level place, which is called this to be, uh, caused this to be known as the Sermon on the Plain. However, it seems like this plain or this level place that he's speaking on was just one place that is among the larger uh, geographic feature of a mountain. That people were coming to him at this mountain and he was preaching what we call the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of overlap here between what Luke lays out here in Luke 6 and what Jesus lays out in Matthew, or what Matthew lays out in chapter 5, 6, and 7 of his gospel. 
Now, just so you know, both of those accounts don't detail all of the same level of what Jesus said. Uh, Luke mentions some things that Jesus do, that Matthew does not, and Matthew mentions some things that Luke does not. This is how the Gospels operate, and if you haven't seen that already in Luke, you'll see that more and more as we go, that there are certain components of Jesus' life and even certain parts of his messages that one writer will feature and the other does not. And they have their purposes in the flow of their Gospel account for doing those and for including those things, not because they're trying to deceive anyone or trick anyone, but because just as any good biographer you don't take every bit of data that you have throw it all together and ask people to sort it out but instead you have a particular purpose and you're trying to give a certain window into this person and that's what Luke is doing here he wants us to understand these particular things coming out of Jesus mouth not because he didn't say more but because these are the ones that he says that we need to know in the account of understanding who Jesus is in Luke's gospel so this is, in essence then, the same thing as the Sermon on the Mount, even though we don't have exactly the same portion of what Jesus spoke on this occasion. Um, verse 17 to 18 tells us also then about the people whom he addressed. The people whom he addressed. And you'll notice that three groups were present here. In an expanding setup, you have, first of all, the 12 apostles the 12 disciples verse 17 says Jesus came down with them and then there was a large crowd of his disciples he says and then there was a further group beyond that a great throng of people loads and loads of people a huge crowd and they were coming from everywhere all Judea and Jerusalem the southern region away from Galilee you remember Jesus is in the northern region of the country he is on the opposite end days journeys away from Galilee uh, from Jerusalem and so people come from the south and not only that but they come from over to the west Tyre and Sidon the coastal region people are flocking to Jesus from everywhere and this shows us next the popularity that he possessed. The popularity that he possessed. Jesus has become very, very famous. He's more than a celebrity, but he is certainly very famous. He is skyrocketing in fame and notoriety. And you can picture the buzz in the crowds as they come to follow him. They have come, he says, Luke does, to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured and all the people were trying to touch him. Everyone wants to hear what Jesus has to say. Everyone wants to see what Jesus is doing. And everyone who has any physical problem, whether it's diseases or whether it is being possessed by an unclean spirit, they're coming to him because they want him to give his power, to use his power to make them well. He is a very, very popular person at this point. So we read about the, the popularity that he possessed. Luke also shows us the power that he displayed. The power that he displayed. Uh, they came to be healed of their diseases, and that's exactly what was happening. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. So they're healed of diseases. They're cured from unclean spirits. They're being healed and cured. And the people are trying to touch him. The crowd is all trying to to touch him. Why are they doing this? Because power was coming from him and healing them all. Now his power was displayed on previous occasions, healing people in the crowds or healing people by just telling them, stretch out your hand or whatever it might be, just speaking the words to them and they were healed. But here it seems that even just by touching him, power was going out. This is not the only way that the, the only time that this took place, but it was a time when it did take place. And this touch was Though not necessary to healing, it was the means by which on this occasion Jesus was healing them. Whether he would lay his hands on them or whether they would actually reach out and touch him, they were being healed because of their contact with Jesus. This is not something that could be taken for granted automatically during the life of Jesus. Just merely touching Jesus didn't heal you of every disease. But on this occasion, Jesus was healing, power was going forth from him, and people were miraculously being healed of their diseases. No wonder they wanted to come to him. Jesus could do anything. And of course, we know that he can. And then if I could add one more point that's maybe not visible in your outline, this introduces us to the principles that he taught. The principles that he taught. And we spill over into verse 20 for this, where it says, and turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, and the rest of the chapter, 
You will note this if you have a red letter edition. The rest of the chapter is Jesus speaking. These are his words. Turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say. Well, what did he say to them? Well, in addition to what the section is that's before us this morning, he said things like this in verses 27 through 38. That there are certain ways you need to conduct yourself interpersonally, in particular toward your enemies. Verse 27, he says, love your enemies and do good to those who curse you. Verse 35, he's still talking about the same thing. Love your enemies. He talks about a willingness to overlook the offenses of other people. Verse 37, don't judge, don't condemn, don't pardon, give. He warns about the kind of people that you should be following. Not people who are hypocrites, but people who follow God in truth. He says in verse 39, a blind man can't guide a blind man, can he? He says a pupil is not above his teacher. You're only going to be as good as the ones that you learn from. And he warns against hypocrisy both in the teachers and in the people that are listening to him. He tells us that it's vital to bear good fruit. The, fruit, the tree is known by its fruit, verse 44 says. And then he warns at the end of this message that you shouldn't just call him Lord, but you need to do what he says. Don't just listen and say, you're the Lord Jesus, but listen and do what he says. And then we have the passage that is here before us this morning, verses 20 through 26. Blessings and cursings, blessings and woes. When Jesus preaches this passage, this section, and when he preaches the others, you need to understand that he is driving a hard line between two groups of people. A hard line. And there are only two groups of people. There are not five or seven or twelve. There are not many different religions and different kinds of people at the end of the day. There are really only two. There are those who will be blessed, and there are those who will be cursed. There are those who stand in a state of blessing before God, and there are those who have nothing but woe to look forward to. There are people who will survive, as the end of the chapter says, the flood of judgment, and then there are people who will not. It's very straightforward. Two groups. Either you are with Christ faithfully following him, trusting in him alone, or you're not. And Jesus says, you have to be in one or the other of these groups. The fault line here, the dividing line between the two, consists of who a person is spiritually. Not who they are in their circumstances, not who they are in their background, not even who they are in what they know or what they say. Or what they teach. But in who they actually are. There's a package of things that go together in a person's character. And their conduct. And their thinking. And their actions. Their words. That indicate that they are either right spiritually or wrong. That they're in the right or in the wrong. Not so much that they don't have moments of failure or anything like that. But that they are either right with God. And that they are walking on the narrow path as Jesus describes it in Matthew's uh, uh, version of the Sermon on the Mount, or they are on the broad road to destruction. They are either on one or the other. And this division is, uh, it is at the heart of it is the idea of faith in Jesus and the kind of spiritual character that aligns with him and with what he teaches in this message. And so if you say you belong to Jesus, what is your character actually supposed to consist of? That's what this passage is going to show us. Now, there is a phrase that is common, and if you work in the uh, financial industry, you will have heard this, or if you dabble in it, you may have heard something like this. A common phrase in, uh, that's mentioned in certain financial disclosures or the disclosures for certain financial instruments, such as mutual funds, a warning of sorts, and it's some variant of this. Past performance is not indicative of what? future results. Past performance is not necessarily indicative or not indicative of future results or future 
performance. This kind of language is written as a legal protection for the people who are offering or managing the funds against people wrongly making the mistake and coming after them um, because they think that what has happened in the past will continue to happen in just the same way or roughly the same way in the future. People want to know how a fund has performed historically. Otherwise, why give their money to it? But they also want some idea of what will take place in the future. And that just simply can't be guaranteed in this world. And it's certainly true that there is uncertainty or lack of future correlation to what has happened in the past in the world of equities where people can have wild increases or decreases in wealth. But nonetheless, people are not all scared away and they look at it as a general guide. At least in that world, though past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results, there often is a correlation. Often. But whether we get involved in that or not, there's another type of message that we all need to hear. One that Jesus wants us to know and that he highlights here in verses 20 to 26. Which is that current life position is not necessarily indicative of future blessing current life position is not necessarily indicative of future blessing and in fact in many cases it will be exactly the opposite and in most cases in almost every way it is completely irrelevant where you have been and where you are now in your circumstances is not determinative at all of whether you are blessed or cursed with regard to your future before God. Many of those who will one day be blessed find themselves now in a position that would be anything but that in their circumstances. And many of those who will one day be cursed find themselves now in a different, better position that looks nothing like what will come in the future. And if we understand this, this is going to radically, radically transform our perspective radically transform our priorities it will change our attitudes it will change our ambitions and so we look to this and say what does it mean to truly be blessed now luke's account is helpful for us because it gives us uh, the other side of the story matthew tells us many things that are blessings in fact he begins the sermon that way and jesus recounts what are known as the beatitudes Uh, which refers to the blessing that is spoken of there. Blessed are, blessed are. And there are eight of them in Matthew. Here, Luke mentions four, and he also mentions the other side of the coin. Blessed, 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 and woe, 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 woe. He mentions both sides. We have heard from Matthew that there ought to be things that we recognize bring blessing to us, but Luke gives us the other side of the story. There are people who have bad things now they're poor they're hungry they're sad and they're hated and then there are people who have good things now they're rich they're well fed they're laughing and joyful and they're spoken well of Jesus tells us about both of these things and the contrast is helpful for us to understand what's going on Uh, When we look at these statements of blessing and of woe we need to understand that these are proverbial statements with conditions attached to them. They're proverbs of sorts. In other words, when someone here reads this and says, blessed are you who hunger, the first thing you should do is not to go throw out all the food in your pantry and try to survive as long as you can without eating or to live in a a perpetual state of calorie deficit. This is not what Jesus is telling you. He doesn't say get rid of all your stuff, get rid of all your food, get rid of all your joy, and then go try to get everybody to hate you. That's not the message of this. This is not instrumental toward going to heaven. Rather, what he's saying is that these circumstances are attendant to the spiritual condition, but they're not necessarily the same. You can be blessed and be in horrible circumstances and you can be cursed and be in wonderful circumstances because the two things are not necessarily correlated at all. And so people are not blessed because they are poor. People are not cursed because they are rich, but instead they are blessed or cursed despite those things or really regardless of whether those things are true. So when we look at this section about this morning about who is blessed, Keep in mind 
that this is not a call to go and get rid of everything. It's not a call to intentionally choose to suffer for suffering's sake. But instead, it's meant to reframe our priorities about what really matters. Not what we have here and now, but rather what Jesus has promised for us in the future. Not what we have here and now, but what Jesus has promised for us in the life to come. And so we'll look at this in two sections. Verses 24 to 26, we'll have words for the well-off, and we'll consider those next week. But this morning, we want to consider the assurances and the promises that Jesus makes to those whose current life experience may not be that great. And so we begin by looking at verses 20 to 23 with this idea. Jesus assures the afflicted. He assures the afflicted. We shouldn't say that he makes promises to the afflicted necessarily because even though there are promises implied here, Jesus speaks of this in the present tense. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. He doesn't say you will be blessed, though that's true. He says that it is so secure that you actually are blessed now. You actually possess this blessing at the present moment despite any circumstance that you find yourself in. And so he teaches them, and he uses this word four times in these three verses. Blessed, 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 blessed. These people have things that are good. Now, again, when we think about being blessed, what do we think about? We think about having our health. We think about having good relationships. We think about being well off financially, maybe able to enjoy life. And when we have any of those things, of course, it is appropriate to give thanks to God for that. But we need to take careful stock of our spiritual condition. We need to recognize what is and what isn't blessing. What does Jesus say is true blessing? Well, he begins with this. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. There is an obvious contrast to those mentioned in verse 25. Verse 24, excuse me. Woe to you who are rich. This is a statement of circumstance. This describes not an attitude, though you should have it, but in this setting and the way that Luke is is telling us of what Jesus said, he is talking about people who actually are impoverished. These are people who are in bad circumstances. This may often overlap also with a kind of humility that they should have in those circumstances, a dependence upon God. If you're poor, your, uh, your answer to that should at least include crying out to God and recognizing that everything that you need comes from Him and not through your own self-sufficiency. So uh, a kind of spiritual poverty, if you will, or even a dependency upon God, even just in a temporal sense, uh, often comes with and should come with being impoverished. But He is highlighting here the fact that people really are in these bad circumstances. Jesus has preached to these people before. He's talked to them in Luke 4, 18. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to the poor. That's who the Messiah came to, not exclusively, but emphatically. He came to tell people, things may not be good for you now, but they can be if you hope in me. So he says, blessed are the poor. But it's not because money is evil. And it's not because all of those people have conspired to put them in these terrible circumstances to make them poor. And it's not for any other reason but this. Jesus tells us, you are blessed for yours is the kingdom of God. This is a shocking contrast. A shocking statement that the poor would own the kingdom. The the kingdom of God belongs to you. That's not who gets kingdoms. Who owns kingdoms? Who inherits and possesses kingdoms? The wealthy, the well-off, the powerful, the people that can do something about it, the people that have agency, not the people who have nothing and are beggars and utterly dependent upon other people. That's not who gets the kingdom, except it is. And it's not just any kingdom either. It's the kingdom of God. Jesus' disciples, if they are poor, are nonetheless those who own what is the greatest possible thing that you could own. They have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And this is an amazing juxtaposition then. You have on the one hand poverty, on the other hand, the kingdom of God. You could not get to two more different ends of the spectrum. Jesus then speaks here of the fact that your current circumstances, if they are bad, but you are a disciple of his, will one day result in a great reversal 
And he talks about this here not only with regard to poverty, but also with every other thing that he mentions. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom. You may hunger now, but then you'll be satisfied. You may weep now, but then you're going to laugh. You may be hated now, but one day your reward will be great in heaven. Verse 23 tells us. These rewards are a promise of something that is coming in the future. You are blessed not because of what you have now that you can see and touch, but because of what you have now that you have the ownership right to. You have a reward waiting for you in heaven. You have a future where you know you're going to laugh and be satisfied. And so it is here too when it comes to the kingdom of God. And though there is an element in which the kingdom of God is now possessed by those who belong to Christ, this, along with all of the other promises in this passage, refer to something that we have to wait upon. And this kingdom will truly be inherited by the people to whom it belongs, not until Jesus returns, but when he does. So then, the kingdom of God is theirs. And why is the kingdom of God theirs? Is it literally and directly because they don't have anything? Or is something else going on? Well, there's something else going on. Um, the message that Jesus wants to convey is this. Being poor doesn't stop you from possessing the kingdom of God. And that you belong to him and therefore you have something greater than any earthly fix for your problems. It can be easy to wrongly understand this. And there are subtle ways that this happens as well. I think that um, you, most of you who are here probably would understand that this is not some type of a, a class warfare sort of manifesto on Jesus' part. You know better than that. You know that Jesus didn't come into this world to say that the poor are all validated and vindicated in all of their conduct and the rich are just oppressors who need to be moved out of the way. You understand that that way of thinking is human, that that way, that, uh, that it is not from God. You understand that it's rooted in all kinds of wrong ways of thinking and that that is not what Jesus is coming to say. But there is the danger of um, a little bit more subtle version of this on this end of the spectrum when it comes to poverty and a general lack of earthly prosperity as kind of indicative of the blessing of God upon you spiritually. That if you, you know, that if you're over toward this end of the spectrum, that there must be some kind of noble motives behind that. You know, that you're a Christian and you fit this description and so this is all kind of tied together in this way. Um, but this is a promise that Jesus gives to people despite their circumstances, not because of their circumstances. He speaks to them in their situation, not on the basis of their situation. So being poor or hungry or, for that matter, sad or hated by other people, poorly thought of, does not in and of itself indicate that you're going to receive any of the promised blessings that are here. So don't look at this and say, well, I fit this description and I'm kind of generally favorable toward Jesus. So that must mean that God is okay with me. I'm not one of those people that pursues riches. I am just content to live below what people would expect or what I should, what I should have. And because I'm kind of generally spiritual, God is favorable toward me. That's not the way that this works. Instead, this is entirely conditioned upon your spiritual condition. The relationship that you have to God. And the fact that your circumstances now are bad are something Jesus notes to reassure the people who are in the worst conditions that even that is not final. And even that is not your true state before God. There is, by the way, here also the expectation that people who are in this position as poor but who will possess the kingdom of God are not stubbornly self-reliant. They're not complainers, but instead they're fully dependent upon God and have set their hope upon him and that they are trying to trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. So blessed, he says, are the poor. Why? Not because they're poor, not because they are right by virtue of being poor, but because the kingdom of God belongs to them. And if they have that, then no financial circumstance matters whatsoever. Blessed are the poor. Then he goes on to say next, blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are you who hunger now. You who hunger now. 
Uh, this is very similar, of course, to the circumstances mentioned before. Poverty and hunger would be associated with one another. Now, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus emphasizes that there are people who also hunger for something else besides food, which is they hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that also is commendable as a spiritual condition. There are people who long for, for nothing more than they long to do what is right and to know what is right and to love the Lord. But here, Luke is describing Jesus blessing upon people who are not just hungry, spiritually speaking, but they actually have this physical problem. They actually are lacking in what they need. Matthew describes disposition when talking about his beatitudes. Luke sticks to circumstances. And he says here, blessed are you who hunger now, not because hunger is noble, but you're blessed because one day you will never be hungry again. One day, your circumstances are going to change. So you have hunger now. And uh, instead of that, what's going to happen is you will be satisfied. Now, you notice here that he does say that there are Christians who are hungry now. There are Christians who are poor now. This goes against a very popular theology. It would tell you that Christians should not be suffering in these ways. Christians should be taking and they should be claiming the things that God has for them in this life. And then if they're not, they're just not exercising enough faith. Well, of course, this is not in line with what Jesus actually promises in the Bible. Jesus does promise prosperity, but not in this age. Jesus does promise that one day you won't have to worry about those things anymore. But he doesn't promise that he'll give it here and now. The timeline is always when he brings his kingdom not just whenever you decide to claim something. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. Blessed, he says, are those who weep, those who weep. And why are they blessed, those who weep now? Because in the future, they shall laugh. They shall laugh. Now, it is possible, of course, for people who are in hard circumstances to laugh on occasion, um, Proverbs tells us that even in sorrow or even in trouble, the heart may, uh, even a troubled heart may then laugh, or even in laughter, the heart may be sorrowful. So it's certainly not impossible for people to laugh, but as a general description, what he's saying here is you don't laugh when things are just going terribly. There are circumstances where you know that it's even inappropriate to laugh at things, and other times when it's basically impossible. You couldn't even do it if you tried. Jesus is talking about those kinds of circumstances. You weep now. Things are hard. This goes along with, it happens at the same time as the kind of joy that comes with being a Christian. Which is to say that you can weep on the one hand, but at the same time have a steady type of joy that is sort of a, a line that you hang on to through those circumstances. We are able to rejoice always, Philippians tells us. We're to rejoice in every circumstance. We can do this, and yet there may be still the emotional expressions of weeping, of sadness, of sorrow. We should be joyful. We should, as Christians, not be spiritual eors. We should not believe and express the idea that the sky is falling and that everything's terrible and there's nothing that we can even find joy in. But that doesn't mean that this is a product of our circumstances, and it doesn't mean that there is not sort of a push in the direction of how things are going when it comes to our emotions. Christianity, this tells us, does not just automatically and visibly bring what we might call happiness, external happiness. This doesn't mean that Christians, or this shows us then that Christians are not always going to be the happiest people in the world. Instead, there will be times when they weep. There will be times when things really are hard. And this does not align with the way, unfortunately, that Christianity is presented today in many places. The kind of happy, joy, joy, smiley face evangelicalism that we often run into where every song and every book and every quote and every statement that's made has to be encouraging and happy and filled with smiles. But that's not the reality of where we so often live. You know this if you've lived for any length of time as a believer. God doesn't look down upon us because we cry sometimes. 
He doesn't look down upon us for experiencing the hardships of life and actually saying, yeah, that's hard. And I didn't like that happening. There's a place in the Christian life for sorrow and mourning and lament and sadness and weeping. And that's not just over your own sin. It's because life can be very hard. So we don't need to put some type of false standard that you just need to walk around with a smile on your face all the time because you're a Christian and you're going to heaven. And so therefore you should just never feel any negative emotions. But with that said, we should recognize in the midst of our weeping that even as we are in sorrow, we nonetheless are blessed. Blessed are you who weep now. You're sad, you're crying, things are hard, circumstances are painful, and yet you're blessed. And so we take hold of this by faith and we say, yes, I know that this is hard right now and this is real and this is difficult, but I'm still blessed And that can turn and and frame the way that we respond to these things. Not that it eliminates our tears. Not that it causes us to to have zero negative emotions in our life. But what it does is it, it shades them. It frames them. It helps us to come up for air. It helps us to be able to pray rightly. It helps us to be able to give thanks and to have perspective. It helps us to be able to move on. It helps us to be able to live with hope. These are the kinds of things that even in the midst of a life of sorrow, one which Jesus, by the way, shared with us, that we can still be joyful knowing that we are blessed. One day, these things will change. One day, we will laugh. We will be filled not only with the joy that is steadfast in us now because we know the truth, but instead also because our circumstances will reflect what's been promised to us. Blessed are those who weep. And then, fourthly, blessed are those who are rejected. Blessed are those who are rejected. This is not how it feels when you're rejected, is it? Blessed are you, he says, when men hate you, four things, hate, ostracize you, insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Verse 22 here might be the first explicit statement in Luke's gospel that people will be hostile toward you sometimes because of your association with Jesus. He speaks here of these four activities against you. They're really all of the same nature. And they're hating you and speaking terribly of you in many times in ways that are just not true because of Christ. And Jesus just leans into the fact that sometimes people just straight up are not going to like you because of Jesus. They just won't like that you're a Christian. They won't like you because they know that you believe in him and they don't like what he says. They're going to not like you because they don't like the way that his followers have acted at times in history. Whatever it is, they just aren't going to like you and it's all going to be because of him. Now, when that's the case, we want that to be because of him, not because of our own actions. And so Peter warns us in 1 Peter 4 to make sure that none of us suffer as an evildoer or, uh, or a sinner or a, a, a troublesome meddler. That let's suffer not for sin, but let's suffer whatever God has sovereignly ordained will take place because we're Christians and people don't necessarily always like that. But let's make sure that it is for the sake of the Son of Man. But nonetheless, it is just often going to happen. People are going to hate you. They'll have this attitude toward you. Um, they'll ostracize you, which means that they will keep you out. They'll keep you away. They'll shove you into the corner and they'll try to get you to stay there. They won't want you in their groups. They'll kick you out. What does this look like? It might look like in Jesus' day, kicking someone out of the synagogue where they couldn't attend. They couldn't gather even with their family. They couldn't do business with anyone there. In fact, that's exactly what happened in John 9, 22. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. But in our day, it might look like not getting invited to certain events. Uh, Might look like getting left out of conversations, walking up to people, standing around the water cooler, talking about something, and all of a sudden they go quiet. Um, A lot of times, it's not people saying, stay over there. Instead, it's people just going somewhere, doing something, just leaving you out in the cold without telling you about it. Because, you know, they don't want that sort of religious zealot fundamentalists around. It might also mean things like you can't get that job. You don't get to join that team or that club. You aren't invited to that social gathering. And on many occasions, it might even mean you aren't wanted at supposedly spiritual or even Christian gatherings because you might actually bring the Bible to bear upon the situation. 
because you might actually take seriously what Jesus said and not just kind of have it as a badge of, I'm going to heaven one day. And so you're not wanted. You're the legalist because you bring scripture to bear. You're the fundamentalist because you try to obey Jesus. Not because you necessarily are, which, by the way, needs to change if it's true. You don't need to be the legalist or the fundamentalist. But it's because you just actually care what the Bible says and about obedience to him. And many people, despite professing Christ, don't like that. And so they ostracize you. They keep you out. And they insult you. They mock. They revile. Jesus makes clear in Matthew 5.11 that they're saying these things falsely. But they make fun of you. Look at this religious guy, this goody two-shoes. Oh, oh, we know what you think about this. Does the Bible have anything to say about this? Do you have any theological points to make? Do you want to talk about doctrinal things? And they mock you. You're just weak. You're just a follower. You're just, you're just a bigot. You don't care about others. You just want to tell people what to do. They scorn your name as evil because of the sake of the Son of Man. Now, a couple notes to remember when you're suffering or not suffering. Um, again, first of all, just the fact that you're suffering for the sake of Jesus. Make sure that this is why you suffer, not because you are uh, foolish, not because you're unkind, not because you're ungodly, but instead because of him. Uh, but also understand that in certain cultures, this is going to happen more regularly and more harshly than others, just kind of naturally. In other words, I, I've experienced that some people see this kind of suffering, they see the promises that it's associated with, and they say, man, I really got to make sure that I go through that. Because if I don't, am I really a Christian? So they kind of manufacture gospel suffering, and they go look for it. And they say, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. So let me go see if I can find some persecution. It's almost like buried treasure. You have to find it. And this is rather something that's just in the course of your life. If you're faithful to the Lord, you're just going to run into it. And we uh, can kind of feel like maybe we're not being faithful in certain settings in our country, in our culture, because Christianity is in many ways widely accepted in, in a very general sense. But it's more of those nitty-gritty moments when we have to compromise in some way or when there's a Christian standard that the Bible lays out that people aren't aware of even when they say they're Christians. And in those moments, those are the kinds of times when we need to stand up and we might not be able to uh, get approval from the crowd. Then again, it may be that the persecution comes more boldly, more harshly, with greater consequences, that that happens in different settings, at different times in history, different parts of the country, different, uh, different parts of town it may be. We don't really know. But the point is, don't go out and try to find this. Just say, if this is not happening, as we'll see in verse 26, then it should cause us to check whether we are purposely pleasing men. But also, if this is happening, then look, we, should, we can still rejoice. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us. In fact, um, this is interesting because he doesn't just stop and say, you're blessed. He could do that. In fact, this is exactly what he does with the woes in verse 24, 25, 26. He just gives four woes and just leaves it at that. Indicative statements. But here he gives us a command. Two commands, in fact. It should be enough just to say you're blessed. But he goes further and says, look, I'm actively telling you, be glad in that day and leap. For joy. Leap for joy. Think about the things that people leap over. When's the last time you got so excited that you jumped for something? Probably a sporting event, but maybe something else that you're just thrilled about. Think about that. And ask yourself, do you have that kind of attitude about people ostracizing and hating you? What is Jesus saying? That you like that in and of itself? No, but what is he saying? Look, if you're faithful to Christ, this is the way that people have always been treated. The prophets who were before you. Your reward is great in heaven for the same way the fathers used to treat the prophets. This is what people have always been treated like that God approves of. So while suffering in general is not a guarantee of future glory, being mistreated for the sake of Christ has tremendous precedent. And so he says, be glad and leap for joy. Um, instead of doing this, what do you typically find yourself doing when you're mistreated by someone else? Grumble? Maybe you despair. This isn't ever going to stop. Maybe you uh, get resentful and you plot ways to retaliate. You take vengeance. Or you complain to other people. Or uh, maybe if it's more uh, systematic, you talk about overthrowing the system. 
of people who would do this. Or you might just spend all your thoughts and all your energy trying to fix these problems. And instead, Jesus says, rejoice. Be glad. Some of the godliest people who have ever lived have been people who lived with horrible circumstances. So then, how do we think about all this? How do we respond? Let me give you a few takeaways. One, um, we need to understand blessing and what it really is. True blessing is for those who belong to Christ. True blessing is not found in current prosperity, circumstances, but it's a reality despite our present circumstances, whether good or bad. True blessing is not something that will be taken away from us. It's permanent and irrevocable. Um, What if you find yourself in one of these categories? If you're poor or hungry, and some of you are struggling now, you don't have enough, you don't know how you're getting enough, paychecks come, but the bills keep coming even more, Um, and, you know, you're kind of jealous of people who are barely getting by, like that's where you're at. Don't let the words of Jesus leave your ears that not only is your poverty only temporary, but if you know him, if you know Christ, that you're blessed now. You are blessed because one day you're going to get something a lot better than a living wage or a comfortable salary. You're going to inherit the kingdom of God. And so you're blessed. What does it say to those of you who are weeping? Some of you may be really, really sad. Your life is filled with hardships. Your relationships are hard. Your parents or your kids or your siblings or your extended family, they're just hard. You're just tired of dealing with them. Um, Maybe you've lost people that you care about. Maybe you hate your job or you hate what you have to do all day. One day, when Jesus returns, he's going to change the whole game. The sorrow will be taken away and you will laugh. No more crying, the scripture says, but you will be so full of joy and that will be the permanent state. Don't put your hope in changing your circumstances, though you certainly can try to do that. But put your hope in Christ and the kingdom of God. We should value the things that Jesus promises more than just fixing our problems. By all means, if you're poor and you can change that and you want to change that, you can do that. If you're hungry and you want to find a way to get food, of course you can do that. And you don't have to live in sorrow and you don't have to just, you know, sit there and take it when someone, you know, does things to you. You can change circumstances. That's fine. But recognize that the things Jesus promises are so much better. They're permanent and they outshine any earthly fix that we could come up with. The best earthly life is not as good as the promised future life that anyone who's a Christian has. And so Jesus tells us that it is infinitely better to have a hard life now but to have eternal life than it is to have a good life now but to face condemnation later on. So then, ask yourself, are you blessed? Are you blessed? I didn't ask if things are going well. I didn't ask if your circumstances are good. I didn't ask if you're happy. didn't ask if everyone liked you. I asked a different question. Are you blessed? And if you know Jesus Christ... If you've come to faith in him, if you've put your hope in him to forgive your sins, if you've put your hope in him for eternal life rather than focusing on this life here and now, then you are abundantly blessed, more than you could ever imagine. And so we walk by faith in these promises. We live with the hope and the joy that they provide. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have blessed us and that we as Christians are indeed blessed. And may we reflect it in the way that we live before you and before others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.